Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, James Collins will look at what the Bible says in John chapter 1 about the Word becoming flesh. And our host, Dr. Larry Spargimino, will reveal the three mysteries of Christmas. The Central Florida Prophecy Conference, our next in-person conference, will take place Friday and Saturday, January 28th and 29th in Lakeland, Florida. Speakers include Bill Federer, Dr. Larry Spargimino, James Collins, Dr. Kenneth Hill, Greg Patton, Dr. Ken Lindau, and Larry Stamm. Registration is now open. Visit swrc.com and click on Conferences at the top of the homepage. Registration is free, but required. Central Florida Prophecy Conference, January 28th and 29th in Lakeland, Florida. Register today by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or visit swrc.com. As we get closer to Christmas Day, our host, Dr. Larry Spargimino, uses Scripture to reveal the three mysteries of Christmas. Did you know there are mysteries of Christmas? In 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, the Bible says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The Charles Wesley hymn, Hark the herald angels sing, the second stanza reads this way, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. These words are certainly rooted in the Word of God. Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Many times when churches and denominations go liberal and forget the Bible, Some of them still stick with these old hymns. What glory in the songs of old. The first mystery of Christmas is in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3.15 is often considered the first statement or the first presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord God is addressing the serpent and says, And I will put enmity, now that means hostility, trouble, conflict, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Literally, he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The promise is that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent that is Satan. This is the first messianic promise in the Bible. No specific details are given, only the promise that a human being descended from the line of the woman would finally triumph over Satan. Bible scholars have called this the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first promise of the gospel. The word enmity comes from a root word that means hatred. There is going to be hatred between two different groups of descendants. The intense conflict between good and evil, light and darkness, will continue between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan, that is, 
in their respective descendants. There will be mortal combat that will continue through the centuries of humanity. It will be pervasive and unmitigating. It will affect nations and people groups around the world. And, of course, we today, who have the completed canon of Scripture, know that it will reach a great climax in the Battle of Armageddon. Two seeds or descendants warring against each other, not for land, territory, or mineral rights, but struggling for the hearts of men and women. So then, what's the mystery? Well, the mystery is the hint of the virgin birth. It's beautifully done. It might not be immediately apparent, but it is hinted at at least. There is a foretaste of it, like a distant rumble in the summer sky, indicating that there is a storm coming, something really important. In the biblical genealogies, the common practice was to speak of the seed of the man or the father. But we know from later revelation given by God that Jesus did not have an earthly father. Joseph was not his father, but more properly, his guardian. From all appearances, it looked like Joseph was Jesus' male parent. The genealogy in Luke 3 verse 23 says, And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, now notice that, as was supposed the son of Joseph. It was supposed that Joseph was Jesus' father, but we are reminded that Jesus did not have an earthly father. Do we see that in Genesis 3.15? Indeed we do. Genesis 3.15 breaks the pattern. It does not speak of the seed of the man, but rather the seed of the woman. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Notice the Bible says her seed. Now there is another mystery of Christmas, and this is the second that we'll be discussing. The second mystery of Christmas pertains to the sign that the prophet Isaiah gave to King Ahaz. In Isaiah 7, we read that King Ahaz of Judah was facing a national emergency. Syria and the northern kingdom, that is Israel, went against Jerusalem to war against it. King Rezin was the last king of Syria to reign in Damascus. Pekah was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And in Isaiah 7, verse 2, we read, And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim, meaning that Syria and the northern kingdom had formed an alliance against King Ahaz of Judah to force him to join their alliance against the rising nation of Assyria. What King Ahaz fears is an invasion of Judah by Syria and the northern kingdom. It appears to be imminent. The Lord sends Isaiah to King Ahaz to warn Ahaz not to form an alliance with Assyria, but to trust the Lord to rid the land of its enemies. Isaiah tells Ahaz that the threatening kings are as smoking firebrands, which means they are basically smoldering sticks, nothing to be afraid of. Isaiah predicts that the threatened invasion will not happen and that within 65 years the northern kingdom will fall into captivity, which is exactly what happened. Isaiah urges Ahaz to ask for a sign. However, King Ahaz responds with a pious word announcing that he did not want to ask for a sign nor tempt the Lord. Isaiah announces that God himself has already chosen a sign for the house of David. A child will be born of a virgin. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. This will be a special child who will be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. 
In Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23, we read, Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The word that Matthew uses in the original language of the New Testament is parthenos, the technical term for virgin, meaning a woman who has never been intimate with a man. There can be no question that Jesus Christ is the virgin-born Son of God. For Christians, it is a clear case supporting the virgin birth. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew uses the technical word for virgin, parthenos. Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of of a virgin. Jesus Christ had no male earthly parent. He was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. But here's the mystery we will seek to understand. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ occurred some 700 years after the prophecy of Isaiah was given to King Ahaz. How could that be an encouraging sign to a king who was facing an immediate invasion? Ahaz needed that sign right away, not in 700 years. We need to realize that biblical prophecies can sometimes have multiple fulfillments, a near fulfillment, and a distant one. Isaiah tells King Ahaz a virgin will conceive, and before the virgin's son knows the difference between right and wrong, that is, in just a few years, those two kings whom Ahaz fears will be destroyed. Now, Isaiah had a wife who was a prophetess. She conceived and gave birth to a son. In Isaiah 8, verses 3 and 4, the Bible tells us, And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria, shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. Meher Shalal Hashbaz means, Speed to the spoil, hurry to the plunder. It describes the downfall of both Syria and Samaria, or the northern kingdom. So the first mystery of Christmas was the mystery of Genesis 3.15. The second mystery is the mystery of the sign given to King Ahaz. Now here's the third mystery. The third mystery is the mystery of the star of Bethlehem. Was the star really a star? Well, you know, even if you are not of a traditional Christian or Jewish faith background, you might feel a bit uneasy searching for signs in the stars. As a matter of fact, there are several warnings in Scripture about the sun, the moon, and the stars. Deuteronomy 4.19 warns, And lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations unto the whole heaven. And then in 2 Kings chapter 23, we find King Josiah leading a revival among the Jews and exhorting them to worship God alone and no other. One of the things that had to be done was to clear out the astrological objects which had been brought into the very temple itself. Josiah, quote, commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priest of the second order, and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal and for the grove and for the host of heaven, and he burned them without Jerusalem. 
Many people have concluded that there is nothing to astrology, just a sort of primitive superstition forbidden by the Bible. But is the Bible here teaching astrology when it talks about the star of Bethlehem? Definitely not. The Bible is not teaching astrology. Astrology is a form of divination based on the belief that the heavenly bodies, stars, planets, the sun, and the moon can influence human affairs and actually control the course of events. The heavenly bodies are worshipped because of their supposed ability to control the affairs of humanity. But that is not true here. The star of Bethlehem, whether or not it was an actual star or something else, was not influencing human affairs. And what we read of the star of Bethlehem is not teaching that we should pay homage to the celestial bodies. Astrology assumes that the celestial bodies cause earthly events. The Bible certainly doesn't endorse that idea, but it does say that the stars can provide messages about earthly events. They can be signs to lead us, to direct us. A thermometer can tell you if it is hot or cold, but it cannot change the weather and make it hotter or colder. Genesis 1.14 says the lights in the firmament of heaven are for signs and for seasons and for days and years. The stars were arranged by Almighty God to signify something even as the star of Bethlehem signified the location of the Christ child. There has been much written about the star of Bethlehem. Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24:17 mentions both a star and a scepter, the royal staff of a king. There is also information given in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27 indicating the time of the birth of the Messiah. Both Daniel and Queen Esther's uncle Mordecai had great influence on Persian royalty. The Magi could reasonably conclude that a star appearing at just the right moment in time was his star. Now, there have been a number of explanations for the star of Bethlehem, such as a supernova, a comet, a massing of planets, a triple conjunction of Jupiter and Regulus, that's the bright star in the constellation Leo, or the remarkable conjunction of Jupiter and Venus on June 17th, 2 B.C. Now, these, of course, are extremely beautiful, exciting, and fitting for the birth of the Christ child. However, none of these explanations, more properly speculations, can explain all the details of the text of Matthew chapter 2. There have been many who have tried to find an explanation of the star of Bethlehem that would satisfy the scientifically minded. But do we really need to find a scientific explanation? Maybe the star of Bethlehem was not a star in the normal sense. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. The wise men came from the east, that is, east of Jerusalem, probably meaning Persia, that's present-day Iran, or perhaps ancient Babylon, present-day Iraq. The implication is that this star led them many, many hundreds of miles. Matthew chapter 2, verse 9 says, When they had heard the king, that is, King Herod, said he wanted to come and worship this child, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. 
Magi, wise men, were well respected in the ancient world. Historians tell us that the Jews of this period expected a new Jewish ruler to arise based on Jewish prophecy. It was accepted that the stars could announce such an arrival. About 60 years earlier, in 63 BC, Magi made a presentation to the Roman Senate. They described celestial portents, indicating that a new ruler had been born. Evidently regretting that news, the Senate responded by ordering the death of baby boys in the candidate's age range. Now, does that sound familiar? Of course, it turns out that when Herod ordered the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem, he may have been following a sort of Roman precedent. That precedent may be one reason Jerusalem was troubled at the news the wise men brought. Perhaps they realized the Romans might shed blood in response. So they saw the star in the east, according to verse 9, and the star went before them and evidently led them and stopped over the spot where the young child was. I do believe the star of Bethlehem, as it is called, led the wise men to the exact spot and really with pinpoint accuracy, I believe all of that, and that it stopped right over the place where the baby Jesus was. But my question is this, was it really a star? We have all seen stars high up in the sky. It's hard for me to imagine a star high up in the sky showing the precise location of anything on the earth. Could a star high in the sky pinpoint a given location on earth? It would seem that the star of Bethlehem was not a star as such, but a luminous object specifically prepared and crafted by God to show the wise men where the Christ child was. The Bible never says the star of Bethlehem was a natural phenomenon. There is so much in Scripture that would lead me to think that it is an unnatural phenomenon, something that Almighty God had prepared for that special, special baby. Several things lead me to that conclusion. The fact that the star of Bethlehem seemed to appear only to the Magi indicates that this was no ordinary star. Also, heavenly bodies normally move from east to west due to the earth's rotation. Yet the star of Bethlehem led the Magi from Jerusalem south to Bethlehem. Not only that, but it led them directly to the place where Joseph and Mary were staying, and it stopped overhead. The word star in Matthew 2 is the usual New Testament word for a celestial body. The word is aster. It appears 24 times in the New Testament, and most of the time it is used to speak of a celestial body. However, it can be used to denote angelic beings as in Revelation 12, verse 4. So, if the star of Bethlehem was not a star, what are the possibilities? Well, we know that God has used a variety of means to lead people, and I'm thinking of the Shekinah. God is able to create light and brightness. For example, in Matthew 17, 5, we read, While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. The greatest thing about Christmas, however, is not these mysteries, but the significance of God stepping into our sin-cursed world. We now have the ministry of reconciliation, quote, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So friends, this Christmas, let's look past the glitter and the lights. Let's focus on the one who provides eternal life, 
to those who believe in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's face it, these are perilous times. Friend, you are really not ready to live unless you are ready to die and have put your faith in Jesus Christ. That makes you ready to die. And if you're ready to die, you don't worry about the future. You can enjoy life in the way that God wants you to enjoy life. As the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Don't wait a minute longer without settling the heaven question. Do it right now. Eternity is within your reach. Today in the Resource Center, we are offering three wonderful Christmas movies that proclaim the reason for the season. Goodwill to Men, Born in a Stable, and The Brothers Christmas. These films are family-friendly and faith-affirming. There are even special segments just for the kids. Get all three Christmas films for a gift of $50 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order these wonderful films online, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Today we have a Christmas edition of The Bible Says with James Collins as he looks at John chapter 1 and explores the meaning behind the verse that says, The Word became flesh. The Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When we think of Christmas Bible passages, we often think of the Christmas story as told in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. However, this verse in John really says Christmas to me. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When I read this verse, I'm reminded of a story about a young couple. And if you'll stay with me for a couple of minutes, I'd like to share that story with you. She was 15, he was 17 when they met. All through high school they dated. After graduation, it was not a surprise when they got married. 4 years later, she stood in her kitchen with a stack of dirty dishes in the sink, two children at her feet, and a pile of dirty diapers in the corner. Tears streamed down her face. This was not the life that she had expected. Depressed and disappointed, she took off her apron and walked out. She called that night, and her young husband answered the phone. He was understandably quite worried and also quite angry. Where are you, he asked, his concern and his anger fighting for control of his voice. How are the children, she asked, ignoring his question. Well, if you mean have they been fed, they have. I've also put them to bed. They're wondering just as I am, where are you? What are you doing? Before he could continue, she hung up the phone. But it wasn't the last of the phone calls. She called almost every week for the next three months. Her husband, knowing that something was seriously wrong, began in those phone calls to beg with her, to plead with her to come home. He would tell her that the children were with their grandparents during the day and that they were well cared for. 
He would tell her that he loved her. He would tell her how much that they all missed her. And then when he would try to find out where she was, whenever the conversation turned to her whereabouts, she would hang up. The phone calls went on and on like that for three months. Finally, the young husband could stand it no longer. He took their savings and he hired a private detective to find his wife. The detective reported that the runaway wife was in a third-rate hotel in Des Moines, Iowa. The young man borrowed money from his in-laws. He purchased a plane ticket and he flew to Des Moines. After taking a cab from the airport to the hotel, he climbed the stairs to his wife's room on the third floor. If you would have been there, you would have seen the doubt in his eyes and you would have noticed the perspiration on his forehead. His hand trembled as he knocked on the door. When his wife opened the door, he forgot his prepared speech and he simply said, I love you so much. Won't you please come home? She fell apart in his arms and they went home together. One evening, some weeks later, the children were in bed and he and his wife were sitting in the living room in front of the fire. He finally got up enough courage to ask the question that had haunted him for so many months. He asked her, why wouldn't you come home? Why, when I told you over and over and over again that I loved you and I missed you, why didn't you come home? She said, because before those were only words, but then you came. You came. Those were only words, but then you came. The meaning of Christmas is found in the words, you came. Jesus was born. He came down here. The words in the Bible tell us over and over that God loves us, but they're just words until we realize that he came. He came to this earth to say to us the very same thing that young husband said to his wife. I love you so very much. Won't you please come home? For some people, Christmas can be depressing. Many are depressed this time of year because they're lonely. I have realized that most people are not lonely because their mom died or their dad died or because their spouse left. I believe they're lonely because they really don't have God. We were made to be with God and God to be with us. The good news is that God came. He came to this world in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible calls his name Emmanuel. Jesus is Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel means God with us. Very soon, Christmas will be over. The decorations will be boxed up and put away. The food will be eaten and the leftovers will be thrown out. Your friends and family will have gone back home, and you'll be alone. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, even when Christmas Day passes, God is with you. He will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. The Lord Jesus Christ came to personally reach out to you. Will you come home to him? This is James Collins reminding you that the Bible says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 
Make sure you get our three Christmas DVDs full of family-friendly movies, special segments for children, and Sunday school classes. Goodwill to Men, Born in a Stable, and The Brothers Christmas. Order these excellent films today. Call 1-800-652-1144 or order online, swrc.com. Have a wonderful weekend, and remember, God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com dot com.